Welcome to the Pragmatic Lead Podcast. Your hosts are Alex Pachuk and John Massey. We have conversations with folks throughout the tech industry to get real-world perspective on how people make things happen for their careers and businesses. Check out pragmatically.com for more content just like this. So Mejd, we're here to talk about front-end infrastructure, monorepos, design systems, before we get into it, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so my name is Mej Kamarad. I am a senior uh, front-end developer at HelloFresh right now. My background actually comes from the theater. I am one of those boot campers. I was actually driving for Lyft in San Francisco for two years, and I had all these passengers being like, hey, you should just learn how to code. And I was like, all right. <laughs> and I, uh, I attended dev boot camp. Rest in peace. It no longer exists. Um, and... Yeah, got a job first off uh, doing some mobile app work for Rumbix, which is a like a construction industry mobile app, helping with analytics and making construction more efficient. And then I switched over, moved to New York, worked at First Dibs for a while, which is where I really kind of became more front end focused and did some deep diving into more front end infrastructure work, which is what we're here to talk about. And then made another switch then to HelloFresh at the beginning of this year. So you know, January 2020, right before everything went went uh, crazy with COVID, which turned out to be great timing because, you know, the uh, we became an essential service delivering food for people during COVID, which was like, you know, kind of nice. Oh yeah, we use we use HelloFresh in my home actually quite a bit. I am mm-hmm. very thankful for the very detailed instructions. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. That come with those meals. No, it's so, great because then you kind of learn along the way too. You do, yeah. And actually, we have we have a couple of sauces and stuff that we'll actually still make on our own that are inspired by things we learned by 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 uh, using the HelloFresh recipes. That's the way to do it. Yeah, I learned I can cook fish. Mm-hmm. Yep. That was exciting. So it's been expanding my mind and and uh, and learning in the cooking realm. And it's so, nice too because now you're not bringing leftovers to the office and microwaving fish and being that guy. Portion control, I think, is is very interesting because usually I'll go when we make pasta or something, I'll go for seconds or thirds. But with HelloFresh, like portion control is there. Yep. I've lost 30 pounds. No way. I'm, I'm running, but we also subscribe to, to HelloFresh. So I don't know. I think there's a story there. That's amazing. We need to make you a spokes child or something. <laughs> yeah, I'm the next. What was the guy for Subway? Oh, Jared. Jared. But, I'm the yeah. I'm Jared for HelloFresh. <laughs> you don't want to be that guy. You don't want don't to be want, that guy. Oh, no. I don't want to be that guy. No, 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 no. All right. Let's X nay on the. <laughs> yeah. On that That's, detail. Yeah, but you sure. Want to edit that one out. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so, Mej, what uh, have you always found yourself like drawn to the front end? Like, and. Or was there like, tell us about your, what have you experienced in regards to engineering? Have you done like some API development and front end work or did you find yourself attracted to one side of the stack, I suppose? I mean, almost immediately I kind of was was drawn towards the front facing stuff. I think really coming from the theater background, it makes more sense since it's more about like what the audience sees. And, you know, my background is is not in playwriting, although I did do some playwriting. It wasn't in just directing, although I did that too. It was to be on stage and recognizing like what is it that we're presenting to the audience and how does it 
affect the audience? Are they laughing? Are they crying? Are they following the, you know, the intentions that I've put forth? And it's the same thing when you're dealing with with any kind of platform, right? It's user experience. That's all they do is like, where, what are the focus points? Are they, are we guiding them through the right way? And I, I really feel drawn to that because that's, you know, you're shaping the story for the user. And then, I don't know, I just kind of, I just kind of started realizing that as much as I do like product, you know, I can never find that perfect match of like the right industry and like really being, if I'm being perfectly honest, like a hundred percent driven by like what the users are about relative to the product, you know, at the end, you know, I have a job and I'm, I can be only as passionate about my company as I can be. But what I really found much more interesting was the problems that other developers were facing within my company. You know, things like as you grow, you know, you'd have things split up, for example, you know, into microservices. And then how do you keep things in sync? How do you keep packages in sync? You know, oops, I just created a breaking change I didn't realize for this other consumer, yada, yada. And I started finding that those problems were much more interesting to solve. And for me, that's that's what led me into front-end infrastructure was why don't we have a single component that is just a modal that is what we use across. And that's actually how I got into it was modals. One of my first tasks at uh, First Divs was update these old modals from some, I think it was like from Bootstrap. We were using some Bootstrap modal. And I said, okay, well, what do I replace it with? And everyone was just kind of like shoulder shrug. I don't know. I'm like, uh, we're a pretty big company. Don't we have like a basic component library or like, Mobile I didn't even know the word. That, in Bootstrap. <laughs> yeah, right. Like they're not the only ones who, who own it. So like we can make our own or, and I had created one at my last company. So I was like, why don't I just, start from scratch and build something that we can reuse that we like and that's styled for us and isn't over bloated. And they were like, yeah, that's actually a good idea. So started building that and that led to, and, and, and there's kind of coupling there with what the user experiences too, because if users see 50 different modals on, on all the different pages, that's kind of a jarring experience. Why does one animate from the bottom? Why does one fade in? Why does one just pop up all of a sudden? Why are they different sizes? Why are the X's different? Why, why are some of them able to leave when you press escape and others don't? I'm, you know, I'm curious. So I really empathize with that. As, as a designer, the consistency is important. But why is it important? What's the benefit that you see or, or what's the... Sometimes there's a, for me, there's an emotional attachment to the, to how software is behaving. I almost like cringe. I'm like, why, why? Yeah. Why do you think that is? I mean, I, I would think I'm no psychologist and I'm definitely not trained in user in user research, but I would imagine, I mean, my hypothesis there is, you know, if you can create a consistency and, and form a habit for the user, then they're more likely to notice the things you want them to notice. Mm-hmm. You know, like you don't want them to notice that, this button is different than that button. You want them to read the copy. You want them to like interact with the thing, right? Mm-hmm. And and so if everything looks beautiful and behaves beautifully and and is exciting, I mean, we all remember like, you know, ooh, that fancy animation that we saw for the first time, like how much of Tinder's success was because of the cool swiping, you know? And that's all anyone taught. It became, it became part of the vernacular of the swiping effect, right? Like, oh, swipe left on that, you know, like we actually right. say that now in real life and it goes beyond Tinder. And that's, that's a cool thing that they did because they took focus and, and worked on it and made it consistent. 
granted, that's only one one feature, like as opposed to how are you making buttons consistent? Do they have a consistent hover feature? That kind of thing. But I mean, if you see it once, you kind of expect, I would expect to see it consistently over and over again. And then back to your back to your question, like why why do I think it's important? It's not just important for the users, but it's important for the developers too, because you know uh, they're going to receive you know some specs from a designer of, of a button, and then every developer is going to try to start it from scratch unless they know that there's a component library, mm -hmm. and that's a bad opportunity for you know creating another variation that's that doesn't work as well or that does work better than the existing ones and. Why aren't we keeping it consistent? Why aren't we having those conversations about like, well, okay, let's talk buttons. What should our buttons do? What shouldn't they do? And how do we make it recreatable for the developers so that they don't even have to think about it and they can focus on the bigger picture? Right. Do you think we sometimes over-trivialize the amount of effort that goes into like building applications? A thousand percent, yes. I. I have the struggle a lot with product where I try to push for making things as stable as possible. And I guess it depends on the stage and, and the um, the expectations that your company has. Like if you're at a startup, yeah, you got to like move fast and you can't really focus on, you know, over documenting everything when you're like one of five developers that I totally recognize. At the same time, if you and those five developers sat down in a room and said, okay, let's just quickly say like, okay, what are like especially for basic UI components, what is what is the button going to be? Let's knock it out. Let's let's figure that out and be done with it. And now, as you develop, because you have a need to develop quickly, you have those tools, literally tools, in place. And then for a bigger company, it becomes a struggle because there's so much focus on those like micro improvements, right? And and these deliverables, and we have to increase this by like 0.5 percent by this date. And and it's hard to to kind of push and advocate for yourself and say like you know, just raise your hand and say, actually, can, can I just spend an extra week really making this as robust as possible? Because it doesn't just affect our, you know, portion of developers that work on our product, right? Yeah, it could, it could affect everybody. If I spent that much more time as a company, we could, we could go faster. And it's, it's not only difficult to explain that it's difficult to put numbers to that, right? Mm -hmm. And that's always at bigger companies what they push for is like, prove it, prove to me that this is the this is the most efficient, yeah, the most efficient and, and productive use of our time. There's value here that we haven't discovered yet that we might not understand. Exactly, yeah. But it's part of the practice of what we rely on people to be doing every single day. Mm -hmm. And frankly, like, there's so much work that you have to put in to be able to prove numbers that then you have to it becomes this vicious cycle of like, well, can I then spend time building the tools to de deliver the numbers to you? Right. So that I can prove the next thing. And it's like, well, if we could wave a wand and, and convince the product people in charge that like, if you could just avoid me doing all of that and trust that I know from the code and from my experience that, that if I build these components, if I, if I work on it in this way, that things are going to be faster and you'll see that once we start developing features using these tools that on average things will get faster, that'll be the number to prove. Yeah. But, but it's really difficult to convince them because it's such a big undertaking. Well, and even after you convince convince stakeholders, then the you have the challenge of measuring. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, now show me. I gave you the time, now show me how it's, how it's having an effect. And that's not always easy either, right? Because we're yeah. talking about people's productivity. So what yeah. do you look at, pull requests or... 
But even those abstractions don't always tell you the reality of what's actually happening or how much work is going into something. Yeah. I mean, for me, I, I lucked out first dibs because product started, well, it wasn't product actually. It was the director of engineering, Rob Richard there, who noticed that I had a knack and, and passion for that. Then he kind of pulled me out into a solo role that became available for front-end infrastructure mm. and basically made it interesting to me by saying like, you'll be able to work on this exclusively. And I was like, what? That's cool. Like, I don't have to worry about building out, you know, an entire feature or working on translations for it and blah, and all the other little tidbits. I can just focus on making these basic components as efficient as possible, as easy to use as possible, as well documented as possible. And because it was through him and we were a small team, like just that infrastructure team, we didn't have to prove anything to anybody. He could just you know, delegate those tasks and I could, I could push back or whatever. It was just the two of us basically. And we would confer with other seniors and, and lead developers in the company on like the major decisions. But mm -hmm. for the most part, we were pretty like, we had free reign to make the improvements that we felt were necessary without having to prove them with numbers. And we knocked it out and ended up making things so much faster for the developers and everyone noticed. So not every company has an infrastructure team, right? Front end infrastructure team. So maybe you can tell us like what the role is of that team, just in general uh, responsibilities and how it helps the rest of the, uh, the engineering org. Yeah, I mean, I guess it varies from company to company. I am not on the infrastructure team at HelloFresh. Um, I am on a product team again, attempting to contribute. And our front end infrastructure team is focused on right now moving things into a monolith. And, and I bring that up to say like the responsibilities can kind of vary based on like how they define it. I see front end infrastructure as, you know, the general support and improvements that all front end, like how do you support and improve the experience and development time for all front end developers, right? While having a, a mind for not just the development process, but, you know, the, the CI, how do you keep a mind on the um, on bundle sizes? How do you keep a mind for like future technologies and how you how you transition to those things? How do you maintain the code base? Like who is responsible when you're when you're in fragmented teams for updating React, for example, across all of your projects? Who owns that? And that feels more like a front end infrastructure person or team. That way they know how to go through and sweep through all of those things. And it doesn't have to be something that you delegate to all the independent teams because that's not something you can you can update in, like based off of when people are free to do it, right? You kind of have right. to do it all at once. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so a single team should own those kinds of those kinds of tasks. Yeah. And John, you are an infra infrastructure team as well, right? Yeah, we actually, my, we call it the platform or UX mm -hmm. platform. So it's very similar parallel where we're hyper-focused on developer productivity. We even run groups like uh, the developer experience. It's like a committee where we have folks come in and we listen to developers talk about the problems they're having, maybe even talk about you know how we're going to change systems over time to meet their needs. Yeah, and it was a challenge. I uh, remember it was a challenge to actually get this team formed. We had a, a multiple attempts to actually prove that there is a value in this and this to form this team and fund and have uh, resources behind it. I think we tried like um, um, intra, intra source type of um, 
model where it's a shared kind of components and everybody pitch, pitches in and we maintain, we have this community and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. How do you prove that value? I think, Mashi, you, you were talking about the value. How do you do that? I mean, that's the question. You know, I know that for, for HelloFresh, we're, we're going through those, those speed bumps right now where design and front end sometimes aren't in sync. Mm-hmm. And design definitely has a design infrastructure. I think it's actually much easier to have infrastructure for design relative to front end infrastructure that then matches that. Like I said, any designer can produce the button without like, you know, regardless of how the front end actually implements it. And so let's bring it back to the, to the measure. Like what we did was we created a kind of audit for the system that we had in place. We had like a beginnings of, of our front end infrastructure and the best way we could measure was, okay, how many times are we overriding existing styles to recognize, you know, like, like where the opportunities are to kind of move things and converge things into a single pattern, right? And then that becomes one metric. So it's really based off of what the problem is that you're trying to solve. If, if front-end infrastructure is so broad, like, for example, there's we haven't even gotten to the monorepo portion of things. Like, how do you prove that the monorepo is the is a measurable actionable thing to do that is mm-hmm. going to bring value. I remember facing this problem at first dibs where I was trying to find a way to make those measurements by saying, okay, well, right now, for example, we have these layout components and we, we basically put them into a single package that ev- with that, all of the different, that all the different, we'll call them fragments have, have to keep them in sync. Right. And so what we did was whenever we had to change, let's say a design system package, we would have to update it in the layout. So that's one set of, of pull requests. And then we would have to update it into all of the different, the fragments that then use those. So we're talking about like potentially up to eight, maybe even 15 pull requests just to, just to update packages and keep things in sync. And that process could take anywhere from like two hours to like a full day, depending on people's availability to provide feedback if necessary, or maybe there's a blocker for some reason because someone else has another conflict with updating that package, et cetera, et cetera. And, and in the end, it didn't make sense to sit there and try to add all these analytics tools uh, just to figure out how long those things were taking. We just knew that they were exorbitantly long. And then by once after we made the decision to move things to the, to the monorepo, once, once things did move into that monorepo, we reduced that hours, maybe even a full day worth of waiting time for the developer down to like 20 minutes. Now tell me, is it worth spending all that time just moving things to the monorepo when a, a full day of waiting becomes 20 minutes versus spending the time to build the tooling to determine that it took a day? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. at some point, yeah. you just got to tell the, the people in charge, like, look, I could spend slash waste my time on proving it, or I could just do it. Right. You know, especially when it's such a drastic change. Right. Um, right, right. But it's, but without the proof, it's hard to convince and, Before we get into Mana Repo, I want to take a step back and talk a bit more about the infrastructure team. Do you have an experience where, with the model word, the shared model, with the inner source model, where the teams kind of collaborate between each other and they build these shared components, build kind of infrastructure around that without actually a specialized team? Yes and no. So the experiences that I've had so far show that, you know, 
a lot of developers and, and product and designers are very hyper-focused on their work, right? And there's never, I shouldn't say never, but there often isn't a mind for the bigger picture and how it affects other teams, right? I see that even now at, at HelloFresh, where sometimes people, not only are people focused on their, on their features, but there's a lack of awareness of other features and parallel work. Mm-hmm. And not only is that inefficient, but that leads to a lot of duplication and ultimately an, in just an experience, oh, an inconsistent experience for the users in the end, right? Mm-hmm. And ultimately, we're building things for the users. And it's hard to remember that like we're also users. Like the developers, the designers, the product people are also users, not of the final product, but of the internal tools. And so when you're siloed like that and you don't have a plan in place for how you share things across the board, I mean, chaos reigns, right? Like who's to say one team won't won't start shifting to have all of their stuff in material UI? Who tells them no? Right. Ah, there's the big word that I love. <laughs> no. And it seems like an impossible word for some developers to say to their product owners, to their, to their designers. No, mm-hmm. I'm sorry. We have an existing thing that doesn't look like this. Let's have a conversation about why this isn't the direction or let's have a conversation why, for why this should be the direction. You know, but, yeah. but if you introduce something new without keeping in mind the old and, and, the, and the stuff that exists, you know, Again, in, uh, inconsistent experiences across the board. Yeah. Um, well, it, in, in my experience, this, this model never worked. We tried a couple of times uh, in the past and until we actually formed the, the platform front end infrastructure team that owned, actually owned this part. It just was really confusing. Who owns which part? Who's going to maintain it? Who's going to update it? New feature comes, like what's going to happen? So teams kind of tend to just fork uh, a component and like we, we just have this priority we have to move fast so we don't have time to to work on this shared initiatives in, in quotes Go ahead. but in what other world do you tell your boss or your stakeholder no right like that's not i think i think it's actually i don't think it's a problem of the people but how we but maybe it's just a style of work that most of us are uncomfortable with to me it takes time practice because at the end of the day, if you're if you're in a silo, you're never really encouraged to think outside of the boundaries of concerns that you're subject to. Mm-hmm. Uh, largely, you're you're measured on your ability to close a ticket on behalf of some request that somebody's making for you. And then when you look at that, you're almost motivated against thinking about others because you're not measured about your ability to collaborate with other teams. You're measured mm-hmm. on your ability to write a new button and put it out on the website for better or worse. And mm-hmm. and then sometimes if I'm an engineer on a team and I'm looking at a design system for the first time, I say like, look, I can see in my mind from right now to button and prod. But if I have to look at the design system, that's going to take me three days before I can even start getting my markup on the, on, on the page. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's contention there. And that decision has to be made by every individual on every single team, every single day. Yeah, I mean, it has to come down from leadership. And, and like you say, there's, there's got to be a team or, or some kind of per, uh, person or persons that own, you know, that part of the platform. If it's a platform team, if it's a front-end infrastructure team, it doesn't matter what you call it, as long as there is some ownership. 
And if you're in a small team and you don't have the resources to have to have an individual own that, that's fine. But if you if you have that principle in place of, you know, if you are a team of five, you don't need to do that as, as much uh, overhead in terms of like, oh, there's too many new components and how do we keep them managed? Because you're just five people. Just turn your chair around and talk to, you know, uh, Bob or Sally right next to you. And you can just say like, hey, didn't you say you were going to be working on on this button component? I'm going to be working on that too. Why don't we talk about what it should and shouldn't have? And then, oh, you know what? We don't know that question. We don't know the answer to the question of like, should the disabled state show this cursor or that cursor? Like, let's talk to the designer. And it's, it is an overhead, right? They're, even in that small team, now you're talking about having an extra meeting, talking to someone else. But, but in the end, you're making the, the code healthier. You can document the conversation in a way that like, proves that you have had a conversation about this, that you know that this was an informed decision from a, from a designer, from a, from a UX researcher, from a, from a product person, et cetera. And now you never have to worry about it again. Right. Or if you do have to worry about it again, because someone introduces a new idea, you can point to this thing and say, well, we originally decided this. So prove to me why it should now be this, as opposed to having nothing in place, having had spent none of that time, and, you know, a year down the line, this happened 20 times. And now you have 20 different iterations. Right. Uh, which is a lot more maintenance. Right. So, so would you say that for teams that are in the position of infra platform, et cetera, there's also an opportunity. And I want to be careful with the word obligation, because I think there's, I think there's a responsibility to those folks to teach others how to think broadly about their work to think about the effects and to actively lower the barrier of entry into the commonality of how people work. Like I almost feel like there's an, there's a responsibility to that team to also help other people understand how to use the tools for the sake of productivity, to reduce the anxiety they might have for meeting the the goals that are immediately in front of them that they're, they feel like they're getting measured against. Sure. I mean, I, I think it actually goes back to the, to the concept of proving it, right? Like, yeah. And, and the only way to prove it to the, to the people who actually are using the tools, right, the developers in the end, is to just build them and, and then they can see it happen. And I say this because at first dibs, I remember there was a lot of resistance. I remember I used to, I used to review some, some pull requests that continued to use old components and I'd say, hey, there's this, use the, use the one from the component library, use the one from this component library, use this, change this to that. And, you know, I'd go through and I'd do a full sweep of this hundred line, you know, PR, and it would just be like a hundred comments and people would be like, uh, Mejd, you know, calm down. <laughs> and I, I even felt kind of, kind of uneasy about giving that much feedback, but I'm like, this is the way to do it. I have to be diligent. And, you know, they were begrudging, I think at first, I, they never said anything, but I kind of got a sense of like, Ugh. cause you know, you know, when you leave like a hundred comments, you're like, oh, am I the asshole? And then they do it over time. They, they adapt, they get used to it. So where does the responsibility lie there? That was on me to, to kind of push for it. But then this magical thing happened where they started realizing over time, wait, now that I've learned these components, now that I've learned how to contribute to those components, it's actually a lot more fluid. I never have to recreate a button. I never have to recreate a modal. Uh, it's just there and it works. And I don't have to question the designer about how it works or what it should do in this state. And there are no bugs because there are tests already in place for these robust, you know, 
thorough components that complete the thing that you expect them to complete, right? Yeah. And it, it was great. I'd even get compliments from people during, ha- like we would have internal hackathons and they're like, dude, I was able to complete that whole page in like an hour because all of those pieces were there. I'm like, exactly. Right. Exactly. So there you go. And now they become, then they eventually became the, the advocates for that design system that we put in place. And they started telling the designers, no, we won't use that because this exists. And if the designers complained, and this was the key, is I was connected to the head of the design department who completely encouraged and, re- and wanted to reinforce what I was doing. And so he would try to reinforce it on his end and in the design teams to say like, this is the process we're going to go through now. Like, yes, if a developer tells you no because of the design system that they have in place, you need to bring it back to us and we need to talk about it. So do we introduce this color? Do we introduce this icon? Like, because this other one that's similar already exists. Maybe we should just update that. Like, we need to have that conversation so things don't get, you know, explode exponentially as time goes on. It's just not a scalable solution to keep it siloed like that. I can imagine there's going to be some challenges with when you have this team, right? It's a centralized team that has a lot of say in, in how things are done. So it almost becomes a, the gatekeeper in the company. Um, yeah. So what are the challenges you found working in this team, interacting with engineers, product managers, designers, executives? The biggest one that I faced, I think, well, initially was, was as I mentioned, the, the developers kind of being reluctant to use the system in the beginning. Followed by then, I got a sense from the designers, some of the designers, that it really restricted creativity, right? Now you have the question of like, well, if we always have these buttons, there can never be new buttons. Like we've restricted our design system so much that you can never create something original and new. And and that was never the intention. In the beginning, we had to restrict, right? We had to say like, I know there's hundreds and I know you want to keep going but let's bring it down to 10 and figure out why, how, and when we introduce the new patterns. And it's hard to convince designers that because they want to create their, they are creatives. I'm a creative. I totally get it. My sister is a, is a creative director and she likes to push boundaries too. She, she tries to create new stuff all the time. And when they come back and say like, this is not the pattern, this is not the, you know, it's frustrating. And it's hard to prove again, that over time, those will, loosen those reins and create better tools to have you contribute. I'll share the opposite experience, which is now at, at HelloFresh, our design system is completely tokenized and, and very loose in terms of the, um, the design system library. In fact, I would call it less of a design system as much as it is like, because it is design tokens, it's like the beginnings of the design system, right? In the end, you do want a single dropdown that has state, that has all of these pieces to, uh, put together rather than here's the token for the color, here's a token for what the input should look like because now you have to combine them together into behavior. And it was set up that way because they didn't want to say no to designers. They didn't want to say to product people who wanted to try this in this other, in this other way. So there's always conflict there. And again, it comes back to saying no. It comes back to saying like, how can we restrict this first and then make the improvements later and stretch and branch out later? It's a difficult conversation and it's, it really depends on how flexible the team can be in, in terms of you know, 
accepting the no and saying, okay, well, we'll just not do that now. And we'll like, as designers, we'll just stick to the pattern that it, that is there now until we get things stabilized. And then let's have a meeting in a month or let's have a meeting in six months, whatever it is, whatever it takes to get it stabilized. In the end, it, it comes down to feeling sometimes that front end is, is just labor as opposed to the end product, which it is the end product. It is ultimately what the user sees. It's not the design. The design can be beautiful and dynamic and, and have brand new, beautiful animations, but that's not what we're going to code, right? And if, and if our code is unstable, that instability will be evident to the user. Uh, what about you, John? Any challenges you found working on an infrastructure team? I mean, I can definitely empathize for a lot. I mean, okay, so we're changing how people work in a lot of ways. And that can make people very uncomfortable, largely from an objective point of view. So I have to, I know I'm signing up to build or deliver this suite of features for this, for this next increment, but you want me to do it this way, or you want to move my project into a monorepo, like, or I have to contend with monorepo tooling, or you're changing things about tooling. So we're, I find that we're a lot of times like introducing new ways of working for folks that go against their immediate practice or how they practice today. The conversations, it's tricky because when you're spending so much time thinking deeply about productivity and trying to make a difference for, for folks and you get that pushback or you get like complaints or pockets of, of areas of you really want to get the feedback from, but you're not getting it. Just managing the emotional effect it has on your team who's spending a lot of time on this, on these efforts, and to know that these are good moments and that we should pull those people closer to us because they're saying something, they have something to say, then we want to hear it, then we want to bring it into our work and make it improve it. So from a culture perspective, it's, it's pretty tough. I'd also say your environment and who's actively working in the moment. Because if you've been with a company for a long period of time, leadership mindset changes. So some managers might say, might prioritize themselves and their thinking over the broader whole. And once you have a strategic leader in that position, it's very, very hard to get an honest commitment. You might have like a verbal one, but under the covers, they're not actually using those things. And there's these fragments appearing. So as you know, someone in my position, and I'm looking for saturation of adoption, then those stories can actually be harder than actually doing the work. Because what I find is the technology part of it is not usually the problem. We, there's a lot of good options out there. There's a lot of good practices. Nowadays, great blog posts, great influencers, great open source projects. But when it comes down to the people and the implementation, it's sometimes hard to get that buy-in. And then even you get criticized sometimes, like monorepo. Monorepo, there's you have, uh, it's polarizing. You have some folks that are just very like, yes, monorepo is a no brainer. And then there's an entire, I think there's probably maybe a majority think that polyrepo is safer and maybe it is, but that, that can lock a company in not making a decision. And that's why I think having a team is good because then at least you have, or at least an architect, someone who's accountable for the, for the decision. Cause then you can make a decision and say, let's, let's move forward or Let's devise some places where we can create escape hatches to get out of the decisions we're making. Because if we're not sure, if we're not sure going into it, if it's going to be good for the broader, broader whole of the org. 
So change and influence, I'd say, are very difficult. And and it can really, like, Majd, it sounds like you had also some strategic leaders that were partnering with you to make sure mm-hmm. that the right conversations were happening within their organization. I bet if you didn't have those relationships, it would be even harder or even take even longer to achieve some of the goals that you were trying to achieve. Oh, it would have completely failed. Actually, when they offered me to switch to the front end infrastructure role, I was so frustrated with the lack of support up until that moment that I was about to start looking for a new job. Yeah. Because I felt like everyone here wants to be stagnant. Everyone here, and this is the blessing of the and and the curse of something that I actually got from Dev Bootcamp, which, you know, that bootcamp, I loved it so much. They they focused a lot on engineering empathy and emotional intelligence more than they even did the code. And one of the biggest and best lessons that I learned, and it reinforced something that I already had in me, was the concept of fixed versus growth mindset. Yeah. And how do you teach that in the culture of an, of an engineering organization? That's like the crux of it all. Because if you can convince everyone to have a growth mindset, then all of this stuff becomes a little more fluid and a little more able to, to like make these changes, to, to try new things, to, to have people adapt. One of the biggest problems you mentioned too is, is how do you get the developers to adapt or how do you get the, the, the people to adapt to this new system or to a new way of doing things? And that stagnancy comes from a lot of times from fixed mindset. I know my way is working and I know my way and it's fast for me, why would I want to change it? Why would I want to try it new? My response to that is always like, you know, you didn't come out of the womb using this. (laughs) Like (laughs) you had to learn it at some point and you had to learn that this was the fastest thing for you. So at some point you try the next thing, you know, you didn't only, only have, you know, milk from the bottle. Eventually you tried a hamburger and you thought, well, that was better. Hamburgers are way better. Hamburgers are way better. But if you didn't want to try it just because that milk was so amazing and you couldn't even imagine anything out there being that much better, mm-hmm. at some point you just got to say, well, you know what? I'm going to try the hamburger. And in this case, it is, yeah, why don't you try the, a new way of, of having a design system? Why don't you try a monorepo? Why don't you try these things? Yeah, but it's it's also incentives. I think we talked about incentives and, and what's rewarded in, in the company and the organization. Even mm-hmm. maybe 95% of engineers would be open and want to try new things. It's just not incentivized. You just have to keep meeting your KPIs and goals. And it's a new amount of repo infrastructure setup will just not you will not get you there. And if you're gonna start saying no, a lot of people will be pissed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's to your point is exactly why it needs to come from the top. It yeah. really comes down to the leadership acknowledging and and choosing, you know, that growth mindset, choosing to to want to move in those directions, hopefully not often, but sometimes at the cost of delivering parts of the product, you know, yeah, because because it's future proofing or it's future thinking but it's hard to it, it's it's impossible without that leadership support right right but but leadership needs to understand there's a value right so you you probably need to show some some value immediately there's some something that we can we there's a return on investment right immediately and then it's a long term investment and they have to buy in into that and you have to deliver on those promises 
Mm-hmm. And we bring it back to proving it, right? We yes. bring it back to now I need the time to, to build the tools to proving the thing. Right. Whereas if we could just have leadership who recognizes this, mm-hmm. you know, and someone comes, like if, if I, as a senior developer, not a lead, not a chapter lead or a staff engineer or whatever, go to, you know, a CTO and say, like, let's say I'm at a smaller company and that's what it, that's who I talk to and say like, hey, I really think that we should move things to a monorepo that they don't go, oh, that's ridiculous. We don't have the time and resources for that. And what we're doing right now works like, eek, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I would never want to work at that company where where that leader is so immediate to shut it down because that's just the way things are. Right. I mean, we're in tech and tech is going to evolve with or without us. You mm-hmm. know, it's, there's always going to be innovators. So how do you stay on track with those things? I would argue, like, even going back to the monorepo thing, that by having the monorepo, one of the biggest benefits is you make one improvement, you make it everywhere at once. Right. And now you don't have to worry about when you're siloed, when you have a bunch of different repos that have to be updated, that things could take a year to up. I mean, literally, that's what it's, I, when I started at HelloFresh, tried to put in one single ESLint configuration for all of, cause I was like, oh, we're kind of all over the place in terms of our code style. Like, can we just have a single? And then people agreed it was a good idea. It is still not done. It has been a year. Yep. We have like 25 run end repos. I mean, it's like, it's, and it's impossible to get the other teams to implement it. So I've had to like do it myself, you know, and I'm not an infrastructure person. So I'm having to take time away from my product team to be able to do this because leadership didn't think it was a priority, right? right. And that's super frustrating. I do want to get that done by the end of the year. I've got like five left. So I, I think I'll be able to make it. When, yeah. when, uh, when we say top down, I wonder if it's, we're not asking permission to do this one thing. What I think it is though, instead is that our leadership team is open to the idea to allow us to be curious and to make maybe a few more mistakes and to spend our time a little bit differently to make decisions that might help us be more productive for the long term. Mm-hmm. Does that you know what I mean? Like it's it's inviting why I think that's so important is because if it's a project you're worried about and not a culture paradigm where everyone is invited to be curious about their work, to be a little bit more pragmatic every day and to say, it's okay to say, no, we encourage that. If, if your leaders are behaving and acting that way or saying like, you know, or audibly investing in things to, or the people to make decisions to, to help them out. I think more conversations like this and more projects like these, like a monorepo could emerge. And the conversation, I wonder, if the conversation between teams is instead of opposition because we're conf- we're fighting over whose work is going to get done first instead we're saying like well how can we learn from this and where are the place that we can start and we, we go on this together knowing that we might learn something that pushes us away from this idea because that should also be okay because the metrics shouldn't just be i'm going to work on a monorepo i'm going to build a monorepo and the world's going to be dandy hmm. that's that could actually be wrong we could do it wrong monorepo can be tricky there's a responsibility there there's always cons. Yeah, to the pros. absolutely. Yeah. And some systems, some teams might not be able to get it right for them to meet their needs. And that sh- I think that should also be okay. And if your leaders are saying that, hey, look, we, tr- we tried this thing. We celebrate the learning, right? We understand what we tried. Maybe we'll try again later. That'll be up to us as a company at that time. But in the meantime, let's take what we've learned. Let's move on from it and, and go on to the next thing.
So, so what is this monorepo? Can we get everyone on the same page what the, what, what monorepo is and maybe talk about pros and cons and, and then we can talk about some challenges after. So right. what is monorepo? So once upon a time, we had monoliths. Everything is in one single code base. And as a company grows, they find that, oh no, our build times are now like an hour or two hours or you know we need a and, and now we have a hot fix that we need to do and the hot fix takes takes an hour to get out and that means we've lost now a hundred thousand dollars because no one could check out you know so oh okay well we need to we need to find a way to make this faster it's always about making it faster simplifying the process so what people decided was let's split them all up into microservices into fragments whatever you want to call them everything is now in a different repository. And this way, this team's work doesn't have to conflict with that team's work. And whether or not you do, um, you do, you know, release to like rapid release, you're not on like a, a release cycle. It's just, uh, you know, direct, what, what's, there's a term, why am I, why am I Continuous not deployment. Continuous deployment. Thank you. I was like, wow, where is the word? We've been doing it. Uh, we only do that at HelloFresh. So I, so I don't even call it that because that's just what it is. Uh, there's no like other thing. So yes, now we're in that polyrepo methodology and everyone is independent except, oh shoot, now we have, everything's kind of out of sync. Everything's kind of like, it's like a tree and now the tree uh, has fruited and now we have this forest and each different tree is growing slightly differently. And, and when one person walks from one tree to another, they go, wait, I don't understand how to climb this one because... The other one looked like this. And now we have to spend all this extra time figuring out why they're different and how they're different. So monorepo is an attempt to bring all that together, distinctly different from a monolith in that a monorepo, from my understanding and my usage of it, is, is how do we keep things together but separate? How, do you still, how are you still able to deploy just a chunk of this thing without having it affect all the other pieces, while at the same time benefiting from having everything in one code base, depending and, and using the same tools from one code base so that there is no overhead for you know, making a package that you have to update now in 50 places. You just actually make the change in one place and it affects the entire code base at once, for better or for worse. And there are tools in place for that. Some people use Lerna, but that's still for packages. And we actually, at first dibs, we started with Lerna and then eventually moved everything to from one monorepo, which used Lerna, to another monorepo that didn't use it at all and was strictly using Yarn workspaces and deployed directly from there. So there was no need for us to build packages outside of that repo. All the packages, all of the design system, all of the libraries and, and components, shared components, all of the deployables, everything in one place. Nice. And John, I, I know you're, you're guys using a different set of tools. Yeah, there's actually a number of them now. I think uh, NX from Norwal, which was the folks that built Angular. Have you heard of that one? No. And then uh, the other, there's a couple others, but we use, we use Rush from Microsoft which under the covers use PN, uses PNPM. But we did, yeah, Lerna, what was tricky about, we used Lerna for our design system and Yarn Workspaces was also very advantageous, but uh, we wanted a bit more tooling. Like what's interesting, what was cool about NX was that they added things like telemetry. 
so they could let you know like what things affected what mm -hmm. uh, and graph that out for you. But the problem we had was that we, we needed, as part of the adoption strategy, we thought it was important to allow people to have different versions of common dependencies for a period of time. And then we gradually allowed like work on homogenization of those things to get more common adoption, but not all at once. Mm -hmm. So Rush gave us a lot of flexibility. There is a compute trade-off that you make because if you have X amount of versions of one thing, it'll create another branch on your tree. And then it just exasperates the, or prolongs the amount of time it takes to resolve those things. But it's been, uh, it's been a really good tool. And what I'm, what I'm really interested in too is understanding like getting more feedback and how engineers are practicing. So now we're starting to look at onboarded telemetry or mini agents that live with the programmer as they're engaging with the tooling and the model repo so that we can get a sense of what they're getting hung up on or are there any processes that are taking in a, a special amount of time. It also uses PNPM or performant NPM. And it just has a very different model for how it resolves common dependencies. So it uses symlinking. So it could say like, oh, I'll look at all your package files and I'm gonna install all the things you need everywhere just one time and I'll symlink those down into your into your application for you. Um, had a, and, and it can also build off of a cache. So you have like this incremental adoption for things or as new dependencies are introduced, only those things are being changed. So it's, uh, those were some of the things that we're looking at, but yeah, we use, we're using those tools, but there's no, I don't think there's any wrong way. I think it really depends on each case by case, what you're working on. I think Yarn workspaces are great. Actually, PNPM just, I think they, they have their own flavor of workspaces that they're, they've put out and, uh, we're, we're actively looking to, to get into that right now. So what are the biggest difference between monolith and monorepo? Because sounds like we went from monolith, one application, one code base to multiple code bases back to centralized code base. That's a very important question. Yeah, I mean, if we're talking like if it could be black and white, that would be, my distinction would be would be a monorepo has small pieces to to deploy rather than a monolith, you, you have to deploy all at once. That could be one definition. I mean, I'm sure others have, have different ones. That's how I use them. There's a lot of gray area in between. Like even with our new infrastructure now, we're, we're developing at HelloFresh. They're calling it a monorepo sometimes and a monolith other times. And the concept behind it is to, is to go back towards having, a, uh, to really making it a single page application. And for, for all of the various benefits that that, that that has. But that's tricky, right? Because if you have an SPA, how do you, how do you still do micro deployments? And again, I'm not on that team now, so I'm not as familiar with the ins and outs and what, and what, um, what the efficiencies are there. So, and I can only speak to my experience. There's only so much reading about it you can do without actually using it to really understand the, the ins and outs. And, and this, is, this is sort of the problem with some of these bigger infrastructure problems is you can't just do a quick YouTube tutorial and try it out in a small code base. <laughs> right. You either like fully commit to the thing based off of some, you know, information that you, that you can dig up on it or you don't. And that's it. <laughs> okay. Well, the, the distinction for me, the distinction between a mono, like the monorepo and a monolith, I don't think are the same thing. Like mm -hmm. when I hear monolith, I hear, like more tightly coupledness between code components. For instance, if I have two, let's call them React components, but you can't have one without the other, that smells like monolithic behavior. But in a, the monorepo is a very 
I think, a very different science because Monorepo says that I'm going to allow for all of your projects to coexist in this space. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to give you the tools to create boundaries between how those things are managed. Now, you could create a monolith out of two components within that same ecosystem, but that's a decision, that's a programming decision where the roles and responsibilities of the monorepo is to provide tools to help people understand where their boundaries are. And that, for instance, if I put a pull request in and I need a code review done, that the right teams are engaged in that conversation. And then the deployment pipeline, you know, the tools, the, the continuous integration understands the tooling embedded in the repo in a way that optimizes the pipeline componentry and that kind of work. But you can have a monolith within a monorepo, sure. But the monorepo tools should help you understand those things that depend on each other so that you can create safe releases without having to manually orchestrate those things in sequence or series, which I'm sure we've all experienced that before. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, you can't turn this on yet until this is enabled. Those are the characteristics of a monolith because the stacking order is significant. And there's probably different levels or kinds of monorepos. Like there is a Google scale monorepo with uh, tools like Bazel, right? With uh, everything in it, back end, front end services, APIs, everything you can imagine. And there are more of a specialized monorepos. Like this is just a client side front end code, only JavaScript that can be managed with Lerna. And Mm -hmm. there's no room for back end for Java services. So there's well, a there's lot of gray. There's a scoping area too. Like some companies that can afford it. Like if, if you're like Google scale, then you have scientists, you have PhDs, you have people available to spend time uh, managing that complexity. For teams like that I've worked on and Majd, I'd like to, to hear your thought on it too, is that we have to control that complexity. We can't afford to invest in specialized technology so much that we can say, oh, you can draw this. I think Google has like uh, dynamic scoping in a way where you can say, give me this code, it's versioned. And then when you reintroduce it into the ecosystem, there's a lot of smart science that's happening on checks and balances to make sure the right resolution is happening. When, if you're using Lerna, that's like a little baby scope in in comparison to that, right? So Google Mm -hmm. science is everything is in this repo where most of the the companies that I've worked with, it's like, we're actually going to just manage this portion of our of our software with, with this model. Maybe we have two repos, two model repos, for instance. Yeah, I mean, just to, just to give some sense of scale, right? At first dibs, it was me and then sometimes my director working on moving things to the mono repo. Also, there was another assistant director, Dale Tan, who would, who would help out. And between that work, we were barely able to get it all done after about a year, year and a half. Mm-hmm. I mean, imagine that. And the front end developers, I don't remember what the exact count. I want to say it was about 25 front end developers. So think about the percentage of time and effort for just us to be able to do just that piece. And we're not even talking about getting into those bigger technologies, right? And then now at, at HelloFresh, also for scale, two of the top, you know, there's a staff engineer and a, and a chapter lead and they're and they own a lot and they've basically been working on this new infrastructure monolith project for the better portion of this year and to the detriment of anything else that they own you know like they don't have the the capacity almost impossible to get a meeting with them to to get consultations on things so it's like you know it's a lot of overhead to even do some of this work um mm-hmm. 
So there are challenges to using some of these technologies. Again, how do you prove that that's worth it? <laughs> and how far do you go? Right. Yeah. How do you identify a good candidate for Monorepo? Like at which point you say, oh, Monorepo makes sense in this case for this setup for these set of challenges that we have. So where's that fit? Well, I mean, I think it depends on it depends on dependencies, right? With front end, it's all libraries and dependencies and and keeping things in sync, really, right? It's one thing, again, if you have like 50 different buttons, and then if one day you make the decision to have one button, how do you keep them in sync across all of the spaces? And not only that, you know, you have build processes, right? Like, why do, do we then need to have like 50 different variations of our, of our, you know, continuous integration processes, just so we can make it fine tuned for each, like, and how much maintenance is that? And how much cost is that, right? To have all those different instances and whatever services that you're using for, for that, which you know you're not building those things yourself. You're using third-party tools and those cost money. Mm -hmm. And not only do those cost money, now you're spending your money on maintaining your version of that 50 times or 20 times or five times when it could just be one, right? So looking at those pieces as a whole, what are those things that if we were to move into one, Versus if we were to stay in five or 10 or 20, like what are the, what are the actual costs in terms of money? Like ultimately that's going to be a good number to prove things, to prove stakeholders. Right. So uh, that cost should be greater than the cost of uh, putting together and funding the, uh, the front end infrastructure team. Exactly. If you let this developer who earns this much in one year spend all of their time and energy on, on this project, in five years, you will more than make up for that money, mm -hmm. right? Assuming that this technology stays relevant for five years and we don't magically get some new tooling that, that we have to move towards as well. I mean, things move fast, but they also don't. You know, like React has taken over from jQuery, but how long did that take and how long will it last, right? Things like that. So do we end up moving towards different, different libraries, different technologies, different ways of, of putting together our code base? You never really know. You can do some research and, and get the best estimated guess, but that's part of your conversation and research and proving it to the stakeholders, right? But there's also got to be a cost of, uh, like you said, there are uh, different, almost like architectures in these 25 repos or how many repos you guys have, mm -hmm. because they all use different type of types of buttons and modals, right? So the architecture gotta be different. To move them into mono repo, you have to standardize that architecture somehow and mm -hmm. that there's a cost for that. So the, the team's products have to either stop or delay their feature development to get into this centralized architecture. Well, see, that's why it took uh, first dibs as uh, as long as it did was I loved our approach for how we migrated things. First, we made sure everything was consistent in the scripting for for all this all the CI. This is the shared web pack. This is the shared lint configuration. This is the shared testing configuration. Like all of those things, we set up in packages, adopted them in each individual place, and so so that way there's like a slow migration towards this convergence of like you know normalcy, normalizing all of these different pieces that are going to be the same when we move to the monorepo. And even if we never did move to the monorepo, having a single scripts package was already a huge improvement, right? The only problem then becomes keeping it in sync. 
And there are ways to automate that. Like you publish this package and it automatically creates pull requests and automatically merges them if nothing happens. But again, that requires effort and tooling when you could just at that point, put them into the same code base, right? Especially if, if you're having to wait that whole process over and over again, if you do that a hundred times a year, it's probably more than that. Let's be realistic. Absolutely. Um, then, then, Spending that time instead of wait instead of the time you would spend waiting, spending that time building the tooling to move them into a mono repo offsets that cost. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you said. I also think that it's important that companies understand if they want to do a mono repo, there somebody has to commit to it and take care of it mm-hmm. and help their teams understand how to use it, take advantage of it, expand its tooling, troubleshoot it. That's also an investment. So yeah, it sounds like in your experience too, you've you've had the facility to do that, right? To evangelize yeah, for I mean, Yeah, I not only was building that tooling, but as we were transitioning things, I devoted myself to being more of like, almost like a floor manager. Like if anyone had questions, I really put an effort to drop what I was working on to help them because ultimately we're, our tooling is meant to help these developers. So right. rather than continuing to focus on my deliverable right now, I had to put effort into like, oh, this person has this question, even if it's small, like, let me not only unblock that, but now that I've talked to them and saw what the problem was that they're facing, I have to consider that in my process, right? Yeah, and, right. It, and it kind of becomes a good feedback loop, but it has to be centered on supporting these people mm-hmm. who are using the, the things that you're, that you're changing. Yeah, and thank you for, the, for elaborating because it's more than just setting up Lerna and Go. Mm-hmm. There's a component to it that, we have to, we're talking about working together in the same space. So we all have to get along and we all need a little bit of help to understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. So how to introduce Monorepo into a company? I guess part of that too could be like, what's the plan? And part of adoption could be, when do you get your to your first attractor? So at what point does the Monorepo feel, go from feeling like a new thing that I might want to avoid to something that becomes more obvious to me to adopt. I want my code to be in there. Have you considered that position at all? I always like to use the metaphor of planting seeds. And sometimes, especially for people who have that fixed mindset, it's good to kind of, it's almost like inception, right? You need to give them, make them think that they have the idea. So you present first, you know, hey, there's this concept called monorepos. And and these are some of the benefits and, oh, but these are some of the problems and, you know, we would never do it at our company, you know, while internally, like <laughs> winking to yourself, like, Shh, don't tell them. And then later, almost, almost immediately, it's kind of like learning a new word and suddenly you start hearing it everywhere. All of a sudden, here's the problem that we're having with our CI. Here's the problem we're having with this thing. Here's the problem we're having. You know, what might really help this is if we had a monorepo. <laughs> and you start realizing that you're not the one suggesting it. Right. And that's how you, and that's the thing as, as an idea starts to become more attractive to other people, that's when you can get that group adoption. Yeah. Because it's different than, than like you independently going in, doing all the research, putting together all these numbers and using that to kind of get a bunch of people in a room who are resistant to change all at once to be like, Hey, I think this is a good idea. Cause it just, I mean, it really doesn't work unless they're already leaning into that idea. The only way they can lean in is if they had had time to actually think it through 
in their mind and to originate their their patterns around why it's a positive thing as opposed to like immediately a no. Yeah. And I think it's a mistake. And I'm and this is something I'm trying to think of. How do we get more people involved in the ideation process for the sake of having ownership to mitigate the feeling of this was pushed on me mm. or I am forced to work this way, even though I may or may not agree with it. I don't really have the only answer I have right now is I need to have that in front of forefront of my mind at the top of any thing that big. GraphQL is a, I think is is, a, is an example, especially with well-established organizations that are finding it beneficial in some pockets. It's really hard to break it out of that because you're at, we're asking a lot of people to think very differently about data and how you make present things to customers and build services. But how do you? I'm just kind of throw this out there. I know this is a pretty deep question, but how do you like? What are some ideas or ways that we can get someone? Let's say. Uh, you and I were going into a new company together. We see the opportunity, right? The monorepo pattern is is here. It looks like it would be a good fit. How do we get more people involved in the conversation of getting to that decision? I mean, ultimately, it has to do with relationships. I think I think the first step, especially if you and I were new at this company, there's probably already people who have thought about this. There's probably already people who complained about some of the problems that they're that they're dealing with. And as new people jumping in, you know, how arrogant to be the ones to be like, right. I think we should completely overhaul uh-huh. and change your architecture because <laughs> I know better, you know? And, and I definitely had that feeling a lot with coming into, coming into HelloFresh because I was like, oh, I just did all this infrastructure work, you know, put me on a pedestal because I know how to fix all your problems, you know? It's, <laughs> and it just, it's such a shitty attitude to have coming into a company. And I had to check that in myself. So really, it comes down to how you build the relationships and have the conversations, you know, independently and say, hey, like, so, like, what are the things that you don't like? What are the things that, you, that you're running into? You know, I'm new here. I just want to understand the bigger picture, like what some of the history. Uh, I'll even share, like, one of the things that I really wanted to push for was for stronger, uh, smarter components. And I mean, like, with state. And that's something that, that HelloFresh rejected a lot. And then it took months before someone finally shared this history of this old package that used to that still exists in in some places that had a whole bunch of convoluted um, logic about all these different sh- splits and variations because of designer and product changes based off of experiments based off of features that they wanted to to, to do and try and ultimately I recognized the problem was that developers weren't saying no right. And that it led to this package get blowing out of uh, going out of control. So rather than just immediately saying, "Oh, we need to have these the, these components be smarter," it's better to understand the history and the story behind why it is the way that it is. And once you recognize that, and you can you can pinpoint the problem, right? Now I know. Okay, well they're having problems with people are not empowered or encouraged to say no. How do I now? The question is, how do I convince them that? And that's the next, that's the next problem to solve. I don't know how to answer that because it's still no, like, <laughs> that's, so, what I, so what I've, what I heard is, is ask, don't just jump in with, with something as big as monorepo, right? Don't pull it off the shelf and I guess dictate or drive the solution, mm-hmm. but instead, and this is a really long 
process. I think it's convenient for us to just say, oh, like, I know this is going to work. Just, just do it. Trust me. That's way easier than instead of talking to the people that that change would actually affect and then drawing parallels to what you understand is possible with using these such like strategies like a mono repo for the sake of solving those problems and there's there and working through the hesitation but i also really like i like what you said about look for other people that probably already had the same idea and maybe there's other people in the company or in your organization that have been trying to make that happen already because like i can see that actually quite a bit when new people come into an organization and they identify same similar issues that they have problems with and they've solved those problems once before they think they're coming up with something new. And, th- and by the time it's presented, there's people like, oh man, like we were trying to get make that happen years ago. So that's oh, there's a missed opportunity to capitalize on the thinking of other folks for the sake of getting more buy-in that can really just not only help achieve the goal, but drastically, potentially dra- simplify what it means to make it happen in the organization broadly. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I I'll really- share too. My, my small way of, of contributing in that way at HelloFresh early on was was having some conversations around like uh, I mentioned before the ES lint configuration enough people were like oh yeah it's so weird that we don't have the same configuration everyone was using like the react app config but there were so many like rules that they would override and extend and change and I was like or we could just have one and then just go through and change you know maybe still extend and change what we want but at least then we have our version and people were like yeah that's a good idea and eventually did encourage and, and help support getting it as far as it did get, it was still slow in the making. But again, it's still my first year at HelloFresh. So it's not, it's not like uh, I could just jump in and change everything all at once, you know, and, right. and that's not on me anyway. That's not what I was hired to do. I bet there's going to be more people that feel like they own more of the ideas that are, that are going into it. Mm-hmm. And I think honestly, like in a lot of ways, that's more powerful than just building a thing that most people don't want to adopt. Yeah. Even if you know that it's going to, it's, it's like, oh, if only these kids would know what's good for them, you know, like, <laughs> I mean, and that is the attitude. Cause you're like, I know better. I know once I build this thing, they're going to there and they adopt it, they're going to improve. And maybe that's true, but that doesn't make it the easiest approach. You know, it doesn't make it the best approach yeah. at all. And it's not. Yeah. Well, Mej, it's been really great talking to you today. We are at about time, unfortunately, mm-hmm. uh, even though I'd, I've got actually a couple other things I'd really like to talk to you about. Maybe we'll maybe we'll do this again. Mm-hmm. So, But before we break, though, is there anything you'd like to let the listeners know that's going on with you or, or opportunities that are available or how to reach you? Oh, I, I didn't even think about that. I don't really have uh, anything in particular myself coming up. I'm just trying to navigate COVID and, you know, like... Oh, yeah doing my thing. I know there are some opportunities at HelloFresh. Uh, everyone's always welcome to look there at the careers page. And to reach out to me, My I actually am very responsive on LinkedIn, although I'm very restrictive about who I connect with so that my, my community is actually people that I know, which I know isn't super common on LinkedIn. And uh, yeah, otherwise you can, I mean, you can try to find me on Instagram, but my pictures are mostly just stupid stuff. I'm not really that active there. So reach out. It's a, I'm pretty easy to talk to, especially if there are any boot campers out there. I am a big advocate for the, for boot campers and getting into the, um, getting into the industry. So if anyone has any questions or some, or just need some advice or some guidance, I'm always there. uh, Excellent. Thanks so much. Thank you. 
All right. Thank you all for, for interviewing me. This is great. Nice. It's our pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks for tuning into the Pragmatic Lead Podcast. If you found this conversation interesting or helpful, we would appreciate your feedback. If you want even more content like what you just heard, check out pragmaticlead.com. If you have a story to tell, send an email to pragmaticlead at gmail.com and someone will be in touch. Thanks again.